All right, Lone Star Gunners, welcome to the podcast. This is Lone Star Gun Talk, the official podcast of Lone Star Gun Rights. And I am your host, as always, Derek Wills. Welcome to the program. First, I want to, I got to get something off my chest. There have been so many people that I have seen, both that follow us and both that don't, that support some provisions of Governor Abbott's proposal. Okay, Earlier this uh, last week, Governor Abbott came out with this atrocious plan that is gun control. People have been giving us kickback because we oppose things like mandatory safe storage laws or prosecuting parents because their child gets a hold of their firearm and uses and misuses it. You know, I understand that we should do that. We should keep our firearms safe from our children and teach them properly uh, firearm safety. And we should uh, want to ensure that something like this doesn't happen as a parent. But you don't criminalize the act of something that you had nothing to do with. You don't punish the father for the sins of the child. You don't, just like you don't punish the son for the sins of the father. Here's the thing. Two things can be true at once, okay? We can both support and want and encourage people to keep their firearms safely stored and completely oppose making it illegal not to do so. The thing is, liberty is not granted on the basis that we make good decisions. That's not liberty. In fact, liberty, by its very definition, is the ability for us to make very bad decisions sometimes. Now, only when those decisions infringe upon the rights of another person, directly infringe upon the rights of another person, that is when criminal charges need to be filed. That is when a trial needs to happen to determine to what extent you in, that person infringed upon the liberties of another human being. Governor Abbott also called for making it illegal to not report a stolen firearm. Okay, how many of you out there, if you found out that your guns were stolen, would not report it? You don't need to make it illegal. But what happens if you have an arsenal in your house, or let's say you don't even have an arsenal in your house, Let's say you go on a month-long vacation because you and your wife have been working hard and saving a lot of money, and you just said, you know what, we're going to take a month off and just relax. And you go on vacation. Three days after you leave, somebody breaks into your house and steals your firearms. And then, guess what? They use it in another crime. Are you going to be held responsible for that? Because you didn't report it? Because you didn't freaking know? The same thing goes, here's the thing. You should want to report your, your stolen firearms, but you shouldn't make it illegal to not do so. That is your property. And if you don't want to report it stolen for whatever reason that you decide, that should be your prerogative. Reporting a stolen firearm is not going to help the police in any way because I promise you, as soon as they steal your firearm, chances are they've already filed off the serial number so they won't even know that that was your firearm that was stolen. Okay. There are so many things wrong with this, and you cannot list a defensive prosecution for every scenario where this law will be completely misused. Another huge talking point is mental health. Oh, man, people love the mental health talking point, except they don't want to actually delve into it and figure out what that means. Just how much can the government infringe upon your liberties under the guise of mental health issues. You know, we hear, oh yeah, there needs to be more things for mental health and we should allow we shouldn't allow people with mental health problems to 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 own a firearm. And I was asked directly during our live stream, you think somebody who's who's mentally unstable should have the right to keep and bear arms? I'm like, well, it's not my right to give. It's not the government's right to give. It is a right that was given to us by God. It is a right that was given to us by – it is inherent to us as human beings, whatever your beliefs are. No judgment here, okay? The fact of the matter remains that whenever you start digging into mental health issues, 
you start realizing just how screwy of a topic this is. The thing is, overall, mental health, that sounds like a great talking point. Sounds powerful. It's broad. It hammers things home. It's mental health. Until you start realizing that a vet with PTSD is mental health. A, a mother who's going through postpartum depression, which is a regular occurrence, by the way, is mental health. Or whenever somebody is grieving the le- death of a loved one or even the breakup of a wife or girlfriend or boyfriend or husband or what, what have you, traumatic things happen in our lives that we all deal with. Guess what? When you are depressed, that is mental health. And that's what we're going to talk about today. To help us out, we have a special guest who is a mental health professional. Uh, His name is Lee Spiller, and he is the executive director of the Citizens Commission on Human Rights, Texas. Uh, Lee, welcome to Lone Star Gun Talk, sir. Hey, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm not a mental health professional. Um, I'm a human rights activist. I'm the executive director of the Citizens Commission on Human Rights of Texas. And we serve as a mental health watchdog group whose purpose is to restore basic inalienable rights to the field of mental health. So for the past 21 years, I've worked on uh, fraud cases, restraint deaths, cases where people are being locked up against their will for no good reason, um, those types of issues, drugging and foster care. Uh, we're not a gun rights group, but uh, that said, uh, you know, there's some overlap between us and Second Amendment groups because allegations of uh, mental illness can so deeply impact your rights and your liberties. So, you know, it, it pays to have some understanding of the mental health world. For sure. Uh, you know, I, I before right before I brought you on, I was talking about how nobody wants to actually delve into this issue. It's a great talking point whenever it comes to gun rights. Oh, yeah, we should not want people who are mentally ill to have a gun because they're mentally ill, so they might do something. But the problem is, as soon as you start delving into the actual issue and defining what constitutes mental health, you realize just how broad of a topic this is. And Yes. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, as a rights organization, we're really disturbed by this narrative around violence and people with mental health labels because it's important to remember that the mental health population is mainly individuals who are presumed to be competent and who haven't committed a crime. But in this dialogue, we treat them differently. You know, one of the most disturbing things, and and so many people fall into it, one minute you're talking about guns in the hands of violent felons, the next minute, you're talking about guns in the hands of quote-unquote mentally ill people, and then you play the narrative back, and the way we're describing these two populations is identical, and that's wrong. Um, you know, I, I, I like to think of uh, Dr. Rick Halperin. He's the director of the uh, Embry Human Rights Program at SMU, and he has this great slogan. And the slogan is, there's no such thing as a lesser person. That is very and, true. Yeah, it's one of those things you've got to keep in mind in the debate because uh, the truth is we're talking mostly about people who have committed no crime. Correct. And just for the record, uh, if this is your first time listening to this podcast, one of the things that we firmly believe at Lone Star Gun Rights is that our rights are inalienable and they come to us from beyond government. And so therefore government doesn't have the authority to define who can and cannot exercise that rights, and that also includes felons. Our philosophy is if somebody is too dangerous based off of the crime that they've committed to be released back into society, then they shouldn't be released back into society. Uh, But the same can also go for mental health. If somebody is too dangerous because of their mental illness to function in society, then they shouldn't be in society. They should be institutionalized. But again, that's also kind of a a slippery slope because, well, how do you prove somebody's too dangerous if they haven't committed a crime? Yeah, so let's 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 break this down. First, let's look at what mental illness is. Okay, um, it's a lot simpler if you think of it as a social construct, right? P- 
People have problems, legitimate problems. People have behaviors. And we don't understand them. We don't know what to call them. So we come up with this term called mental illness, right? To this day, the mental illnesses are not diagnosed with blood tests, brain scans, uh, lab tests of any kind, uh, x-ray. They're, all they are is clusters of behavior, right? So there are groups, there are, there are panels of psychi psychiatrists that sit, sit down and they look at clusters of behavior and they come up with names for them. And, you know, you end up with this whole big book full of quote unquote mental illnesses. Every one of them was voted into existence by a panel of psychiatrists. And, you know, one thing that's frightening about that is how many of them have ties to the drug industry. Um, so you have somebody who has real problems, they have legitimate problems. Uh, let's take a veteran. You could say, yes, uh, Joe just got back from Iraq. Oh, man, he has really experienced, you know, he's had some horrific experience. He's been in an extraordinary situation. He's having a normal reaction to the horrors of combat. Joe needs our support. And Joe does need our support. The problem is uh, to bill for that, you got to give him a label. Which right? would be post-traumatic stress. Right. And it's funny, there's a psychologist out of uh, San Diego who uh, his career was working with combat stress. And uh, I, I listened to him talk one time and he had this really profound thing. He said, he said, it's post-traumatic stress. It's not post-traumatic stress disorder until you freeze it in place with bad treatment. Um, so we're talking about an ordinary reaction to an extraordinary situation. And uh, unfortunately, you know, there are people that suffer for years. Right. And, you know, as far as veterans are concerned, me being a vet myself, I have seen and I know people who have PTS uh, and they're treated with, uh, with just uh, narcotic drugs to help alleviate the pain, but it doesn't actually treat the issue. And the end result is they're not actually getting treatment for what the real problem is. And uh, the only organization that I know of specifically for that uh, is the PTSD Foundation of America, where they have combat vets who have gone through the same thing, counseling combat vets who are still going through it. And that's right. really the only way for that particular instance that you can actually treat people with that. But that's not what's being done at the VA. And even if somebody is not a combat vet, say somebody uh, you know, was kidnapped and underwent an, a horrific ordeal, they're going to still have the same stressors that combat vets do to an extent. And it would be classified as post-traumatic stress as well. Correct. So, and yeah, and it's just, it's, it's shameful. Yeah, I mean, we throw buckets of drugs at people. And, you know, horrible side effects. Some of the side effects can actually be dangerous. Some of the side effects are associated with violence. And you have people struggling with that every day. You know, your last podcast, I was really struck. Uh, one of the commenters was talking about how he had PTSD, but he'd been proven to be, you know, not a dangerous self or others, you know, that type of thing. And I replied back, you know, and my reply was, dude, you don't have to prove anything. You are presumed to be competent. And you're presumed not to be a danger to self or others. But I think that that illustrates the danger of these labels, because once we give somebody a label, people want to second guess them. They want to substitute their judgment. And it's really uncalled for it. You know, I, I look at it and I go, OK, let's let, well, let's look at the forms you fill out when you buy a gun. What are they asking? They're asking if you're mentally defective. And you're, you're you familiar know, with that question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And most of that, at least per federal law and even state law, they're asking if you've been ruled by a judge as being mentally incompetent. Well, the problem with that right. is how can a judge make that determination? A judge is Correct. not a mental health doctor. You know, uh, he, well, he relies on mental health doctors. The real question is how can a mental health doctor 
reliably make that decision because again he's relying on clusters of behavior and his opinion about them and you know one of the really sad things i had a case recently where a uh he was actually a law enforcement officer at the time but he, he got detained on a mental health detention and his comment was once the allegation is raised nobody listens to you anymore all they listen to is collateral information right right so you're so stigmatized that nobody is listening to you. And, um, you know, I, I've been to a number of commitment hearings and I'm always shocked and disappointed. And, you know, some of the hearings I've been to involve probably one of the better uh, probate judges in the state. And even in his court, I'm just shocked and appalled, right? Because we're, we're talking about judging or second guessing people's behavior. You know, occasionally they have done something dangerous, but, uh, even then you get into this question of, yeah, okay, so they were drunk or they were under stress. They're not now. They've sobered up. Why are you keeping them? Right. Now you brought um, up something. Um, you actually finished my sentence for me. Uh, you, you said that you know the judges are relying on the testimony of mental health professionals. And mm -hmm. then you made a great point in, in that they're basing their testimony off of a cluster of behaviors. The issue is, though, that, you know, somebody can go to 10 different psychiatrists and get 10 different diagnoses, including one where they're, they have a clean bill of health, right? Yes. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, another, another interesting facet of this, you know, for some reason, we have this uptick in Texas of people walking into psych hospitals and getting held against their will. I mean, I'm talking about even people that, uh, walked in to inquire about outpatient grief counseling, calling us or calling the media and alleging, hey, I went in to inquire about outpatient counseling and they locked the door behind me and they wouldn't let me go. Um, the same doctor that's filling out the affidavit to have you detained or committed uh, is often the same doctor who stands to profit from your treatment. So there's an incentive there to uh, have somebody who's requesting an outpatient treatment to be become an inpatient patient. You have, you know, essentially you have um, you have this inherent conflict, and and you know I would hope that you know decent people uh, would recognize it and really be careful. But uh, it's only as good as you know. It's kind of like the whole chain is only as good as his weakest link thing. You know, it, it, it's something that could be abused. And uh, in some cases, I believe it has been abused. So as it relates to our Second Amendment rights, and, you know, we believe that, it's a, that Second Amendment rights are civil rights. You know, I said before, they don't come from government to begin with. Mm -hmm. So as it relates to all of these sorts of things, what sorts of impacts can... Um, say somebody walking into a clinic for outpatient treatment on depression and then they get the door locked behind them, what sort of impact can that have on them? Well, let's look at this in two veins. Number one, uh, once you've been locked up, uh, there is a chance that somebody is going to file an application to have you involuntarily committed. If you get involuntarily committed, then you fall into that, uh, God, I hate the term, that mentally defective category. Think about that for a second. If you had terminal cancer, would anybody call you defective? Uh, I would hope not. <laughs> if you had a congenital heart defect, would anybody call you defective? Um, I would hope not. Of course not, but you get a mental health label and so suddenly people feel okay calling you defective. Well, yeah, so because, just... because you're crazy, right? That's that's the deal. There's such it's a injustice. You know, you know, let's look at this for a second. And this this is part of the equation too, you know, you, you get the quote unquote mentally ill guy being portrayed as that crazy guy, you know, the shooter. Mm -hmm. Well, our prisons are full of people who had to be crazy to do what they did. You know what? That doesn't make them mentally ill. That makes them criminals. Right. Criminal, and you know, criminality doesn't make sense. There has to be something going on in the brain to think that it's perfectly okay to take somebody's life without any sort of justification whatsoever. And I mean, right. if you really get into some of these crimes and, and 
look at the case-by-case instances of some of these really heinous ones. I mean, just look at Ted Bundy, for instance. I mean, was he mentally ill or was he just a criminal or is it both? And, you know, whenever you talk about, say, the, the recent shootings, say Santa Fe, this kid's making videos and social media posts about uh, fantasizing about doing this. But the thing is, he never saw a psychiatrist who ever asked him about any sort of violent tendencies. So he can't be labeled as mentally ill because now he's just in custody charged with crimes. And uh, we just don't know. We don't we don't know his history yet. Um the Southern Run Spring shooter is an example because this is someone who uh, was known to the system. He had criminal problems and he had had a uh, mental health diagnosis and a long history of treatment. Um, I would think that if treatment was going to work for this guy, it would have worked by then. It didn't. Now, you know, can, can you um, clarify what you mean by treatment? Does that mean drugs or does that mean counseling and psychotherapy or, or what have you? Um, all too often, in fact, I would say, you know, kind of the mainstay of treating these labels is drugs. And I, I don't want to discount people out there that are trying to help people. But, uh, uh, you know, the paradigm these days is drugs and drugs have side effects. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it's actually quite interesting. Uh, CCHR International put out a paper recently on uh the association between psych drugs, suicide, gun violence. And, uh, you know, it's another one of those issues that it's tough. Um, Researchers mined the uh, FDA adverse drug event database, and they found 31 drugs that were disproportionately associated with violence. Really? 25, yeah, 25 of them were psychiatric, and they were common psychiatric drugs, things like antidepressants, which tens of millions of Americans are on. Right? Does that mean that they shouldn't own guns? Well, you wouldn't take guns away from tens of millions of people on the basis of they take a drug. Well, yeah, and right? depression is is such a uh, depression is such a a widespread, I guess, for lack of a better word, issue. Because some people are just depressed because of it might be a chemical imbalance or some people are depressed because of, I don't know, postpartum depression or, you know, they just suffered the loss of a loved one or a breakup of a marriage or, or what have you. Depression comes people can, in. Yeah, people can be depressed because of life situations. They could be depressed because of an online, underlying physical illness. Mm-hmm. There's all sorts of reasons uh, people get depressed. The interesting thing about the chemical imbalance is that uh, that actually, um, that was a theory. And it was a good theory because it it sold a lot of drugs and people fall for it. But if you actually, uh, if you listen to the commercials, you know, the the one that comes to mind is the Zoloft commercial. But, you know, in general, antidepressant commercials have kind of done this. Um, You know, depression may be caused by a chemical imbalance such and such treats that chemical imbalance by doing blah 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 but no it doesn't say it is caused by a chemical imbalance it says it may be caused by a chemical imbalance and there has been yeah there have been a number of experts that have jumped onto that because uh you know it sounds good and it certainly sells product but the truth is we don't know you know, you, you can't test somebody's blood. Um, you know, like, let's say you put somebody on an antidepressant. You can't really test their blood to see what is a uh, a proper level of that antidepressant. You really can't test. Uh, I don't think you can test uh, for a proper level of serotonin, and you've got a number of serotonin receptors. Um, you know, it just it, it, it gets kind of crazy, and I'm not a doctor. The doctor would probably discuss it better, but the point is um, the chemical imbalance is a theory. And, uh, you know, there's just when you look at, you know, the mental illnesses, you really what you have to go on is clusters of behavior and uh, somebody's opinion about them. You can't verify it with an X-ray or a brain scan or anything like that. So, and that's so that that it, that's part of the slippery slope problem is because gener- you know 
in essence, you're going to be judging somebody's behavior. So now you've got somebody that's been labeled. Uh, we apparently feel completely okay talking smack about them, talking about how they're dangerous, blah, 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 blah. But, uh, you know, it's just one of those things you have to be really careful of. Are there dangerous people? Absolutely. But uh, to portray a whole population as dangerous or potentially dangerous is a right nightmare. Yeah, for sure. I mean, especially whenever you start getting into some of the more, um, I guess, serious cases of, um, well, I, even like my, minor bipolar disorder uh, and even major bipolar disorder. Sometimes, I mean, there's no guarantee that one, you'll get a, a diagnosis of that. And two, if you do get diagnosed with that, there's no uh, guarantee that it's an accurate diagnosis. Uh you know, I, I've talked on this program uh, a little bit about uh, my sister who committed suicide in 1997. And I went through uh, probably about three years of, uh, of uh, taking antidepressants and uh, seeing a psychiatrist on the regular to help me cope with that, which looking back was probably not the best of, best of methods. Um, but at one point, one doctor actually diagnosed me as bipolar, and I am probably the furthest thing from an example of somebody that's bipolar uh, th that you can find. And But that was only one doctor, and I saw many. So, mm -hmm. you know, we start coming into things like that, and when people uh, are talking about gun rights as they relate to gun rights, are we going to start having... HIPAA laws violated to where whenever somebody issues a uh, a, a diagnosis that fits, fits whatever government criteria they set, uh, they're reporting that now to the next background check system or, um, y you know, it, it kind of goes into this big ordeal and the governor kind of went into this a little bit with his program to identify a quote problem children or, or I, that's not really a quote, but basically what he was saying is if there are students that have issues, you know, allowing teachers and staff to uh, to identify those and deal with it before they may or may not get violent. And we start. Going yeah, and how do you do that? We're into the pre-crime kind of, uh, you know, minority report. I always I, thought it was a decent movie. Now it seems like more of more of a manual. Um, I, I was literally going to bring up that movie. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, yes, it, it actually I don't know is. If you caught it. I don't know if you caught it, but uh, uh, yesterday evening, the Speaker of the Texas House uh, put out a uh, a set of uh, interim charges on uh, on this gun safety and mental health issue. And uh, one of the, one of the things that he's wanting um, a couple of committees to explore, to explore is actually universal mental health screening for our kids. Because that's not Orwellian at all. Oh, oh no. You know, it, it's weird. I, you know, I've done a lot of work on a lot of different types of cases. But the first family law case I ever worked on, it was probably the second CPS case I had, but it was the first one where I was actually assisting the lawyer and stuff like that, was a little girl in Pflugerville who uh, her parents let her participate in a mental health screening project it was you know, a little research project out of ut and um next thing you know you know they, they had apparently gotten a letter yeah your daughter's cool you know clean bill of health and then you know within a short time after that they're getting calls from uh the researchers oh you've got to talk to our psychiatrist your 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 daughter needs to be institutionalized, blah, 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 blah. And they're like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. We're going to go get a second opinion. And, you know, they didn't see any suicidal behavior, so they, they chose to watch and wait, you know, which is a legitimate strategy. Um, their daughter was removed from them, and she was taken to Austin State Hospital. She was forcibly injected. She was restrained 26 times. And her attorney, a reporter, a psychologist, her doctor, and us, all of us working to try to get her home. It still, it was over four months before this little girl went home. Wow. I mean, imagine being 13 years old. You've been stripped away from your family. You're in Austin State Hospital. 
and you're being physically restrained by adults and injected. I mean, we're talking about treating people like animals. Right. Not not to and mention, I mean, the there's so much wrong with that. I mean, the parents' rights are being violated. The girls' rights are being violated uh, at, a, at an atrocious level. You know, I mean, it is... Uh, yeah, you know, I want to say it's a it's a leftist's wet dream as far as mental health is concerned. But you know, whenever we we start talking about issues of mental health as it relates to any rights, but particularly for us, gun rights, you know, this is the kind of stuff that we that we're afraid will happen. But apparently, it's already happening. It is, and uh, it's 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 something we have to be cognizant of. Um, you know, if you're talking about uh, your right to possess. Um, then you've, again, you've got that horrible, mentally defective language. And uh, let's look at this for a second. Um, you're talking about being civilly committed. There, last year, there were 49,000 applications for involuntary commitment in our state. That's, uh, that's just involuntary? That's just involuntary. So, and that's just civil commitment. That wow. doesn't include criminal. That's civil. Um. 49,000 applications. Now, only a small percentage of those cases actually uh, get held long enough to get a commitment hearing. Of those that do, about two-thirds of them did get committed. That's the end of their Second Amendment rights. Of course. Um, you know, yeah, of course. And uh, then for um, for the rest, okay, now let's – oh, wait, wait. Let's, well, let's stay on the commitment issue first. Okay, so that's, that's, just, that's your civil commitments. Then on the criminal side, you get arrested, even even for Class B misdemeanors. Um, somebody can allege that you're mentally ill and incompetent to stand trial. In which case, you're going to be committed. Right, and then there go your Second Amendment rights. Not to mention right. the charge of a Class B misdemeanor in the state of Texas. Uh, That's going to interfere with your LTC rights. Exactly. Right. So, so you've got, now you've had a criminal charge. Somebody has decided um, that you may be incompetent. You're going to have a hearing on that. You don't get to stand up and request a jury trial on competency. Only your attorney, you know, your, your attorney gets to stand up, not you. Because you're mentally incompetent, correct? Well, see, that's the thing. The law presumes that people are mentally competent. You're presumed competent. And, but somehow in this criminal system, they worked it to where no, your your lawyer gets to speak up. Your lawyer can demand a uh, jury trial on competence. Well, what if your lawyer is the one that's saying that you're incompetent? Yeah. And <laughs> the other piece of that commitment is that it doesn't depend on dangerousness. You know, if you're civilly committed, they they are finding that you are a danger to self or others, or that you're so gravely disabled that you can't take care of yourself. If it's criminal, there's not a finding of dangerous. It's it's a, it's a matter of um, whether you can um, aid in your own defense, whether you can discuss the facts of your case uh, with your attorney. Um, I can't ver quote it verbatim, but basically rationally with a reasonable degree of factual understanding. Right? There's no element of dangerousness in there. Wow. So you are accused of a crime. You have not been convicted, so there's no final finding that you did anything wrong. And then you're sent to a psychiatric hospital without a finding that you're a danger to anybody. Your initial commitment on a misdemeanor is uh, up to 60 days. You have no right to appeal. On a felony, your initial commitment is 90 days with no right to an appeal. And then, you know, after that, they can go ahead and commit you. And technically, you could be held for, you know, I mean, they have to renew your commitment, but technically you could be held for as long as um, what would have been, you know, your maximum sentence had you been convicted of the crime, all without a trial on the merits of, of your, you know, whether or not you did the crime. So and, uh, and we had Again, I want to make sure that I'm hearing you correctly, but this commitment is not based on the fact that you were crazy or out of your... Uh, mental capacities during the commission of the crime, it's whether or not you understand the trial and can aid your attorneys in your defense. Is that what it is? Right. Um, yeah, you know, when you read this, the decision it's based on, you know, they're presuming that, yeah, you, you 
you are too out of it to participate. But, but you know, the part of that decision that our law revolves around has to do with, you know, can you aid in your defense? Can you discuss this with your attorney rationally and with a reasonable degree of factual understanding? And uh, uh, with no dangerousness element, it's really questionable as to whether or not we should be holding anybody. Um, I'll give you a great example. We had a, a, a case of an attorney who um, she actually successfully represented a, a number of people who were being accused of being incompetent. And uh, all of a sudden she gets a criminal charge and her own attorney decides that she's incompetent. Now this is a veteran criminal defense attorney and yes, pretty opinion, you know, pretty opinionated on her defense strategy and all that. But um, that doesn't mean that she wasn't capable of speaking with her attorney. It doesn't mean that she was incompetent in any way, but she got sent to North Texas State Hospital, and then she got sent to Kerrville State Hospital. And how incompetent was she? She was so incompetent that she was allowed to practice law from inside the state hospital. Wow. And it took her a year and a half to get out. See, I didn't know. Uh, I didn't know this. I thought that when somebody was deemed mentally incompetent at their trial, it was because of the fact that they were quote unquote crazy at the time that they committed the crime. No, this, no, no. You're confusing. You're confusing not uh, guilty please. by reason of insanity, right? With uh, with competency to stand trial, but you know, our, I'm, our, I'm sure our, that's our, a that's a common confusion, though. Absolutely, yeah. And not guilty by reason of insanity is another animal. It's not something we've ever liked for this reason. Um, when you're not guilty by reason of insanity, you have this problem of, number one, nobody can uh, go back. You know, you're dealing with opinions. Nobody can look into your head and see whether you knew what you were understanding when you committed the crime. And once you are um, found not guilty by reason of insanity, no, you're not going to prison. No, you're going to be stuck in a psychiatric hospital. And it's really up to the powers that be when you're going to get out. So uh, it's, it's an indeterminate sentence, basically. Hmm. But it seems like the person is getting off, but in, in, in actual fact, uh, not so much because they're going to be confined. And, you know, some people get out, some people spend forever in those places. Um, as far as the whole mental, mentally incompetent to stand trial portion of this, mm-hmm. um, you said that they still have to renew the, the commission, but you could still be there for as long as the maximum sentence of the charge, correct? Right. So that attorney, um, now, you know, as it turned out, uh, once she did go through trial, you know, I think she got sentenced to three years or something. But uh, but technically, had they really pushed, you know, since she hadn't had a trial on the merits of the case, uh, her concern is that she could be facing up to 99 years without ever having a trial on the merits of the crime, technically. Um, would that have happened? Doubt it. But, you know, who knows? You know, when the statesman was investigating that situation, they actually found the gentleman that had been held as incompetent to stand trial. The, the law had changed you know before it was just really indeterminate and then they decided well that's you know we're going to make it to where you can't be held any longer than your maximum sentence would have been and so there was a gentleman whose uh maximum sentence would have been 20 years and he'd been held for 20 years and three months they were just trying to decide what to do with him right um you know that's a scary proposition um for sure people think you know we, we i'm sorry go ahead we call these places hospitals but if you're confined against your will, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about a hospital, a prison, or the Four Seasons. You're still being held against your will. Yeah. And all of this is still when you are presumed innocent of the crime that you are being charged with because you haven't exactly. been proven guilty. Exactly. Which is a whole nother violation of due process. You know, it's just it's just a quick a judge says, okay, yeah, he's too mentally incompetent to understand what's going on at this trial, so we're going to 
uh, we're going to commit him until he is competent. And, you know, that sort of thing, I don't... And we're going to forcibly drug him and render him competent, you know. Yeah. But it doesn't matter. You've already been committed for competency restoration. So, again, as far as that application to buy a firearm goes, you've been committed. Yeah, for sure. So uh, so that's a whole other population. And, uh, man, we have more and more people who are either being held in the state hospitals for this or now they're doing jail-based competency restoration. So you have tons of people that are languishing in jail for this quote-unquote competency restoration. And uh, that's pretty serious, man. Yeah, for sure. Now, the so, governor has called for uh, reporting of de- uh, mental incompetency uh, within 48 hours as opposed to the current 30 days to the uh, National Instant Criminal Background Check System, the NICS system that we have in place. Uh, yeah, and I don't know enough about that. And, um, you know, I don't know if the current 30 days is because of an appeal period or whether it's just to give judges time to do it. So I don't know how that works. Well, you, even um, if it is, you don't have t- you don't really have time to build a case for an appeal if they're reporting it within 48 hours, because at that point, your 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 right to bear arms is gone. No, that, 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 that's my point is the, the current law. I don't know why they put the 30 days there. And who knows, it, it could have something to do with, you know, having an appeal period. But uh, uh, under that proposition, that's a little bit different. And uh, like I say, we are not a gun rights organization, but uh, we are a human rights organization. And I think that that's something that y'all need to be aware of so that you can, you know, decide what your strategy is about that. Uh, you probably also need to be aware of the interim charge that was given to the uh, it's a joint charge. It was given to the Committee on Homeland Security and Public Safety and the Committee on Judiciary and Civil uh, Jurisprudence, and that is to examine current judicial procedures and practices and make uh, recommendations to assist all courts and jurisdictions in reporting judgments and verdicts, which make up the uh, uh, information sent to the National Instant Check System, review and make re- recommendations regarding the list of convictions judgments and judicial orders which disqualify a person uh, from possessing a firearm. I, I, I think y'all would want to pay attention to that since, since we're apparently tampering or contemplating um, changing the list of things that can disqualify you. Oh, for sure. Especially because yeah. the current law lists uh, criminal conviction and mental health as two separate line items of that definition of who cannot possess a firearm. And, you know, the whole the criminal conviction is rather specific, whereas uh-huh. mental health is incredibly broad as, you know, we're here at the 40-minute mark of this conversation, and I don't even feel like we've really gotten too terribly deep into this. I mean, I feel like this conversation could literally go for hours before yeah, we and have, it, it's and it's one of those things that people need to actually know and, and reflect on because, um, again, you know, in some ways it seems complex. In, 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 in other ways, it's actually incredibly simple. It's just that it's so far-reaching. Basically, right? you can't you're calling have somebody, a... You're calling somebody a name, and based on that, um, their rights and liberties are going to be um, affected. You know, mostly what I deal with is people's right to go home. Right. Right. And people's right to make um, informed decisions as to, you know, what what do they say you have? What are the benefits of the, you know, the purported benefits of the treatment? What are the risks? And really, what are the alternatives, including no treatment at all? Right. Yeah. And, and the corollary of informed consent is informed refusal. And you have a right to refuse. And those are rights that we deal with on a daily basis. You're seeing them because, um, because these same allegations of mental illness, these same issues impact Second Amendment rights. So on the one hand, you've got the commitment issue. But then on the other um, hand, you also have the, um, the license to carry issue. Because when you fill out that application, 
you're going to have to answer a number of questions, including, you know, whether you've been treated for bipolar disorder, whether you've been treated with certain drugs. I believe it's been a long time since I looked at the forum. But the point is, um, okay, let's say you do get locked up. Let's say you agree to take the drugs just to get out. Great. You've gone home. You've quit taking the drugs. You've gone back to your normal life. Uh, a couple of years go by. You're doing well. You have a firearm, and you go, man, I would like to exercise my rights. I would like to do the class and apply for my LTC. Well, what do you do? You're, you're either going to lie on the form and break the law, or you're going to... Um, Tell the truth on the form and get denied, or you're going to tell the truth on the form and then have to go find a doctor that will uh, give you a clean bill of health, and then there's going to have to go before, um, you know, a review board. So even that, you know, even even having gone into treatment can affect your um, LTC rights, and that's the point. Like I say, we're not a gun rights organization. But what we're saying is people actually need, you know, people who do care about their gun rights actually need to know the ramifications of these things. So let me ask you on uh on as as it relates to your organization and Uh your focus, what sorts of issues do you have with this whole red flag uh, proposal that the governor has? Um, I I, I think it's a bigger issue. And I, 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 I tried to bring it up at the beginning and that's this we've got this whole narrative around mental illness and so we we've thrown this blanket this blanket statement you know that basically says the mentally ill are dangerous and uh, number one we feel like they're kind of the straw man in the gun debate because we're pointing to a population we're saying oh dangerous when the fact is that uh, the majority of that population is no more dangerous than anybody else. And um, they've committed no crime. Yeah. And the, the process of this is um, it's every bit as tough as the commitment process. And, and not only that, but, you know, in a, in a situation following one of these shootings, now you've got, you know, this heightened awareness. You have people wanting to act out of, quote unquote, an abundance of caution. And so it's going to impact people's rights. I, I, I'm still trying to decide, you know, are we going to testify? How do we, how do we testify? Because again, we don't come down, we don't take a position on gun rights. Right. Right. We take a right, a position on the right of people to, uh, be at liberty and, uh, decide what treatments are, what, you know, they want to do. We, we, not be forced into treatment when they've committed no crime. Those are the types of things that we deal with. And, uh, but again, you know, this, it, it's funny, just as, just as this mental health thing impacts second amendment rights, this second amendment argument also, you know, it, it goes both ways is what I'm saying. Right. And not to mention and, beyond the gun rights that, uh, I mean, these, these proposals are tailored specifically to target gun rights. But, mm-hmm. I mean, there are still going to be other ramifications outside of gun rights that are going to be impacted as soon as this red flag proposal, if it goes into effect. Because really all it takes is a few people at a school to say, yeah, I think something's wrong with Timmy over there. Well, that's the thing. There is a, you know, obviously, you know, you've got the red flag issue in the, in, in the governor's recommendations. You've got several of those types of issues, but you have um, a huge amount of content in his recommendations that really involves uh, mental health screening of children, predicting who's going to be violent, and, and, and pushing a program out of Lubbock that, uh, you know, basically you, you've got kids that have been identified one way or another as a risk. They get mental health screen. Um, to, you know, about half of those going through some sort of interview style triage. And then you look at the stats. Okay, seven arrests the first year. Um, 25 children removed from school. 44 children sent to alternative education placements. Well, great. Good luck getting into college. Okay. Um, 
38 children taken to emergency rooms or um, inpatient hospitals. This is a huge impact, and the effects of that, uh, no doubt, will follow these children for the rest of their lives. I mean, imagine the trauma of being marched out of school in handcuffs. Yeah. Right. And there were kids who were detained at school. I mean, it doesn't take much to to look into issues like this. I mean, hell, Kyle Kushev at, at Parkland uh, mm-hmm. was detained by law enforcement just because he went to the gun range with his dad and posted a video on Twitter. You know. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. I saw an article last night that talked about the increase in uh, mental health detentions in the wake of the Parkland shooting, and apparently. Some clinics in Florida saw is you know saw their admissions as much as or referrals as much as triple. Mm-hmm. You had people running, you know, and that's that's hysteria. Oh, for sure, and it's the, hysteria. Really, um, what everything boils down to is that very, very, very few people, even those with mental illness, are violent. Very, very, very right. few people will think that it's a good idea and act on it to. Uh, hurt somebody else or infringe on their liberties. You know, we, that's we, exactly right. But and, we and conversely, this... you you could look at the drug side effects uh, aspect of this. And when you go down the list of shooters, it's amazing how many were on or coming off of psychiatric, psychiatric drugs. Yeah. Does that does that mean you have to take the gun rights away from everybody who does drugs? No, but you do have to train teachers and other people to recognize side effects that uh, have violence potential because you've got to communicate that to parents because then they can talk to their doctor Yeah, and I mean, they, they can decide to do what to do that way. Guess what? The government's not deciding what you're going to do. They're saying, Hey, you need to know this because you know, let's face it. Parents have a duty and they have a God given right to deal with their children. And that's not the government's right. It's the parents' right. Yeah, I mean... Uh, the proper thing is to train and to communicate concerns to parents. Yeah, on, under this new proposal, I mean, I don't think that they have to really be informed until, you know, it's at the point where, hey, we're committing your son uh, or we're uh, sending him for evaluation. Uh, there, there is parental consent um, in a couple of different ways. The question is whether or not it is informed consent. You know, the, the kids who were interviewed in Lubbock that uh, ended up being arrested, were they told that things they revealed during their interview could result in their arrest? Were their parents told that? Uh, were they or their parents told that uh, the things that they say could result in institutionalization? Were they told that uh, things they divulged could uh, uh, result in CPS involvement? And I'm not saying that uh, that people who commit crimes shouldn't be arrested, but I'm saying before your question, you ought to know your rights. Absolutely. You know, it's ironic. You know, we we have a uh, a law that allows the police to detain you for mental health reasons without a warrant. How can they make that uh, determination? uh, Basically, they're just deciding, hey, is this guy a danger to himself or others? And if so, um, what do I do with him? And and, and the police are in just as good a position to make that decision as psychiatrists are. Psychiatrists are no better at predicting future dangerousness than anybody else. And, And I'm not saying that the police get it right. I'm not even saying that it's right that we have this. But what I am saying is, you have this system where it's done. We're seeing a an exploding number of uh, these warrantless mental health detentions in places where they're reporting any data. There is no statewide system. But part of our law is this. If, if they do that and they take you to a psych hospital, you have to be assessed by a mental health professional within 12 hours. But ironically, you don't have to be informed that what you say to that mental health professional can be used against you in a commitment hearing for 24 hours. Wow. Yeah, so you have to be seen within 12. You don't have to be warned for 24. And then once you are in there, you languish. Yeah. You know, if, you, if you were a criminal defendant who got taken to jail, 
you would have to be brought in front of a magistrate to be warned as soon as possible not to exceed 48 hours. If you are a mental health patient, um, they have to make up their mind about, you know, what to do with you and get that information to a judge within 48 hours, not counting weekends and holidays. So basically, in the criminal system, due process is swift. Mm -hmm. In the mental health system, due process doesn't work on weekends and holidays. Right. And not to mention, whenever somebody is placed under arrest, the first thing that they're told is, you have the right to remain silent, and their entire Miranda rights are read to them, including that anything that you do say can be held against you in court. That's correct. You know, but wow. whenever it comes to mental health issues, you know, somebody could be going through something, uh, but that doesn't, it doesn't require them to be institutionalized or even forced onto, uh, onto psychotropic drugs or drugs of any kind. It could just be having a therapist to talk to, you know, but having support, you know, it, it's amazing because in doing this work, you run into people in the community that, are helping people and you know you run into a lot of people that don't want to diagnose they don't want to start people down that road they just want to help and some of those people are doing an incredible job and you know i'm not saying that people don't have problems and i'm not saying that some people aren't dangerous because some people are but if you haven't been committed if you haven't committed a crime i'm not sure about locking you up and, um, you know, if, if we're going to do this to people, we've got to protect their rights very carefully because what happens, you know, unfortunately, just like in the criminal system, what happens to you in the mental health system could impact your rights for the rest of your life. Yeah. You know, Jefferson said it best. Uh, he's, uh, of course, he wrote it in Latin, but uh, he said, uh, I prefer uh, dangerous liberty to peaceful servitude. And, I like that. Uh, you, you know, it, it's really true because, it's, I mean, what you're describing, it, it is tyranny. It is, uh, you know, somebody having to prove before, you know, without the commission of a crime at all, that they are okay to exercise their liberties because of some issue they may or may not even be going through. It could just be reported by somebody who is being spiteful, you know, and, you know, we're, we're supposed to have a system of justice and that includes in the mental health world where you are presumed innocent until you are proven guilty and you should be presumed competent until you can be proven mentally incompetent. And that should come with its own set of circumstances and, and stipulations uh, that don't infringe upon your liberties. And right. And in the process, we're actually we're making judges or we, we're asking judges and we're asking mental health people. We're, we're asking people to make decisions or predictions that uh, none of us are adequately qualified to make. Right. Um, you know, that a lay person is in just as good a position to predict dangerousness as a mental health person. Mm -hmm. And uh, the fact is, none of us know. It's, it's interesting. There was a. Uh, there was a study done. There, there's this, I think they're called Texas Defender Service, and they do a lot of uh, death penalty appeals. And uh, because, you know, to get the death penalty, you got to have some psychiatrist come in and predict that you're going to be dangerous in the future. They did this study and they looked at death row inmates and uh, how many of them engaged in uh, dangerous behavior after their conviction, right? And, God, it's been a while since I looked at it, but I think it was like 95% of those guys didn't ever do anything dangerous. Yet 100% of them had been, had been predicted that they would, and that was part of them getting the death penalty. Wow. Well, yeah, that, so it, it, it's that tenuous, right? We're, we're working off of opinions. And uh, – since we're doing quotes, I'll give you a quote from the Supreme Court. And this this was in a case called O'Connor versus Donaldson. It's kind of one of the landmark mental health cases on you know what does it take to uh, commit somebody, and uh, you know the, the question really was can you commute 
can you uh, commit somebody just for room and board, or does you know do you have to be doing something that could uh, reasonably, you know, be calculated to make it better or whatever, right? But uh, this is what the court said: May the state fence in the harmless mentally ill solely to save its uh, citizens from exposure to those whose ways are different. One might as well ask if the state, to avoid public unease, could incarcerate all who are physically unattractive or socially eccentric. Mere public intolerance or animosity cannot constitutionally justify the deprivation of a person's personal liberty. That is very profound. Uh, you know, I'm not... I, uh, I've said it... Uh, more than a few times, but the liberty that needs the most protection is the liberty that is agreed with the least. And because if everybody's agreeing, then there's not an issue. But if, you know, you have 99% of a community wanting to uh, seize Billy Bob's property to build a community center, uh, and Billy Bob is the only dissenting vote, well, his vote should be the one that matters because it's his rights being trampled on. Exactly. Yeah, our, our our joke about it is laws aren't made for beautiful people because they're already protected. Right. You know. Um, and you know, and that's the real shame of mental illness even being brought into the gun debate is that uh, it's just it's a straw man, and you can point or a red herring or whatever you want to call call it, but you can point to this population and equate gun crime with them, and it's easy for people to go, "Oh man, they can't take care of themselves." I'm sorry, we have tens of millions of people in this country who have labels and who are taking care of themselves every day. And y you know something? I don't, uh, and I, I don't give any credit to uh, the current gun control laws on the books for this, but uh, you never hear a story about a uh, schizophrenic going up and shooting a, a populated area. Well, that's an interesting point, and I, I, I actually, I don't... You know, a, a surprising number of shooters uh, had been in mental health treatment, and I really haven't followed what their diagnoses were. But that begs the, diff the question of, well, wait a minute. The guy was already in treatment. What are you going to do, treat him twice? <laughs> yeah. You know, um, and so it becomes a question of, well, gosh, um, what what are we doing here? You know, we're we're saying that oh gosh, we need to be able to force people into treatment, um, or oh look, he was off his meds. Well, gosh, what about the meds made that a problem? That's what a... made that a problem, right? Yeah. Uh, people, you know, we really believe, you know, the most fundamental thing we believe in is informed consent. Of course. You know, making informed choices. We're not here to tell you you should do something. We're not here to tell you you shouldn't do something. We're here to tell you you have the right to be informed and make your own decisions. And uh, that's the problem with uh, mental health in the gun debate is we're basically saying, well, guys, you got this label here, and, and we're, not, we're not so sure that you should uh, be able to make your own decision. Yeah. If, uh, Lee, I... I, we've gone long here, but I'll tell you, this, this conversation needs to happen more often. People need to know uh, exactly what it means to, to tout this talking point around and what that means for our liberties as a whole. And uh, I really appreciate your time today. Uh, if people want to find out more about the Citizens Commission on Human Rights, uh, where can they go? Uh, the easiest place to go is cchrint.org. That's I-N-T? Yes, C-C-H-R-I-N-T dot org. And, um, yeah, and, uh, you know, frankly, I just, I, I wish that uh, that mental health was not part of the Second Amendment debate. I think that, um, you know, are Second Amendment rights worth debating? Absolutely, just as all things are worth debating. But uh, I, I think when we start putting false uh, mental illness into this, we start getting into a false narrative and, um, an image that people are already having a hard time overcoming, mm -hmm. you know, and you know, you know, day to day among just people, 
people tend to tolerate other people in general. But where you see it, you know, as a problem is official contact, going to the doctor, ending up dealing with the police or at the Capitol. And then you see people say the most incredible things based on just a mental health label. Yeah. And uh, it's called stigma, right? And it's funny because the people behind this whole anti-stigma campaign are some of the same people that push these uh, red flag type laws. I'm going, really? Wow. Nothing says stigma like, hey, we want to take up, take away your rights because you have this label. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I would say that it's ironic, but it's at, at this point in uh, our history, I'm, I'm going to say that it's not. It's more expected than anything else. Unfortunately. It's 1984, man. It's double speak. I know. I need to go back and yeah. read that book again. Because... I did last year because there were so many odd bills at the Capitol that were snooping. You know, the word or- Orwellian has just kind of, it's been over years. But, you know, one of my testimonies, you know, I pointed out, you know, up until now, I thought 1984 was a novel. Now I realize it was a manual. Yep. Um, and it, it's unfortunately, that seems like where we're, where we're getting to in our society. Yeah, unfortunately, I think you're right. Uh, Lee, thank you very much for your time and, and shedding at least some light on this. Uh, I know this is a an issue that we could talk about for an, a, a very long period of time before we really fully understand uh, what's going on with it as it relates to our liberties. Um, but hey, I think- thanks. Yeah, and I, I really appreciate the opportunity because, you know, in general, I talk to too many people in the Second Amendment crowd that believe in their cause, but then, you know, when it comes to mental health, you know, like, like we were saying, everything gets fuzzy, right? Mm-hmm. And it was just important to me that y'all be able to really think clearly and make good decisions about this because, uh, you know, you, you deserve to know. Yeah, for sure. Well, I, I really appreciate the time. And uh, if you ever want to come back on, uh, you have an open invitation, okay? Hey, thanks, Derek. And yeah, I really enjoyed it. All right. Thank you, sir. All right. Thank you. Well, there you have it, guys. That um, that was a that was a that was a lot to take in. Uh, I am going to definitely go back and re-listen to this conversation because I know that even having this being part of this conversation, that I missed something. So, I would recommend the same to you: go back and re-listen to this and share it with everybody that you know. Because when we talk mental health, it is a very dangerous topic, especially as it relates to our our liberties. Not just our, our gun rights, but liberties for everything else. So uh, I would encourage you to go back and just re-listen to this conversation um, whenever you get a chance. And uh, please share it with everybody that you know. And please make sure that you are subscribed if you are not already. And uh, rate us on iTunes and Google Play. And uh, until next Sunday, Lone Star Gunners, arm yourself with knowledge and share the ammo. Lone Star Gun Talk is a Lone Star Gun Rights production, hosted and edited by Derek Wills. Copyright Lone Star Gun Rights 2018.